Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam. I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splaining the Science. Today, we're talking about our brains and how they change with new experiences. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. How are you? I hope you're doing well. This episode marks our halfway point through the 12-week block that I'm calling our spring semester. Um, I know the episodes have been sort of scattered throughout the last few weeks, like some come out on Wednesday or Thursday, and they're supposed to come out on Tuesday. Um, But regardless, I hope you've been enjoying them so far, and I hope you've been learning a little bit and laughing a little bit with me. Um, If you have been, why not drop a review real quick? I don't know, just an idea. Maybe leave five stars. I, I don't know. Just a suggestion. Um, it's fun. Come on, do it. All the cool kids are doing it. But seriously, I do appreciate every review that the show gets. And it's the easiest way to show me what you guys think about the show and about every episode. So, yeah, please do leave a review. Um if you feel so inclined. This is me inclining you, though, to leave a review. So maybe you should do it. This is me pushing you. Do it now. Thank you so much. Love ya. Um, anyway, <laughs> this week I was hoping to talk about consciousness because my friend sent me like a really wild article about consciousness and how we can like model consciousness in the brain. Um, but I didn't really have the time to research the topic this week. So that episode will be coming at some point in the future, but not right now. Um, the reason I didn't have much time to research this week was because I moved into a new apartment. Um, I'm really loving it so far. It's great, but it took a lot of time to like pack up my life and then move it and then unpack it and get settled. So That is this week's excuse for why the episode is late. (laughs) Um, Also, this week's episode is going to be a shorter one. Um, I'm basically just going to read one of my old blog posts. I wanted to post something to be consistent, um, even if it is recycled, but hopefully we'll be back to like newer, more fresh, more informative content soon. So, yeah, as I mentioned, I moved... So I'm in a new environment, I'm in a new neighborhood, I'm experiencing new things, and all the while, my brain is changing, it's responding, it's learning. Um, And your brain does the same thing whenever you need to adapt to a new situation. Every time you learn something or practice a new skill or get a new experience, your brain is changing. We call that neuroplasticity. So this week's questions have to do with neuroplasticity. The first question is, how does the brain function in general? Just kind of like a a brief, beef, not beef, brief, a brief background about the brain, brain cells, how they work. And then the next question is, how can the brain change? So kind of a brief, good God brief overview of neuroplasticity um, and also getting into some specific examples of how uh, neuroplasticity 
has implications in clinical research populations. So let's start with question one, which is how does the brain function? Just some brain basics. So your brain has, our brains as human beings, have a couple of different types of cells. And one of those types of cells is called a neuron. That is the nerve cell. Your brain has billions of neurons, billions with a B. And a neuron basically, a single neuron, if we're looking at just one, looks like an elongated blob of sorts. It kind of reminds me of a tree where one end has like a rounded stump with like roots coming out of it. And then that's attached to a long stem or tree trunk. And then on the other end of that tree trunk, there are these branch looking things. So we'll get into like the parts of the neuron, what they are, what they do in one second. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I wanna say that these neurons, these tree looking nerve cells in the brain, they work to transmit nerve signals throughout the brain and the spinal cord. So let's talk about the parts of the neuron and how each of these parts of the neuron play a role in nerve propagation or nerve cell signaling. If we're going to start at the roots of the neuron, if we're going with the tree analogy and we're starting with the roots that are attached to the rounded stump, um, those roots are called dendrites. And that is where uh, the nerve signal starts typically in the neuron. Um, and then this nerve signal propagates through the rest of the neuron. So at the dendrites, a stimulus like the presence of a neurotransmitter, for example, serotonin, dopamine, glutamate, um, the presence of those neurotransmitters will start a chain reaction and that chain reaction spreads along the neuron. The reaction is called an action potential and it's essentially an electric current that passes from the dendrites through the center of the tree stump, which is called the cell body of the neuron. Um, that holds the cell nucleus. Then the electrical signal goes down the long stem of the neuron, which is called the axon. And axons help brain cells uh, from different parts of the brain physically connect to each other. So if there's a neuron in your amygdala um, that starts in your amygdala, the dendrites are there, um, it can project, that's like the terminology, it can project up to your frontal cortex by elongating its axon so that the cell starts in the amygdala and can end in the frontal cortex. So that long tree trunk or the stem can be pretty long um, and it can go across different brain regions, which is pretty cool. Um, so once the electrical signal travels down that axon, travels down the stem, it arrives at the tree branches or the axon terminals and or the synaptic terminals. At this point, 
depending on the neuron and where it's projecting, it can release another signal onto another neuron by releasing neurotransmitters into the space um, between the sending cell and the receiving cell. So in other words, at these synaptic terminals, there could be lots of um, serotonin built up in these axon terminals. And then when the electrical signal reaches the axon terminals, that will stimulate the release of serotonin into the space between the uh, sending cell and the receiving cell or the, the next door neighbor neuron. I talked about this a little bit a couple of episodes ago. Actually, maybe not a couple. It's been a while since I talked about it. But when I talked about SSRIs and how serotonin signaling works, um, it's sort of like that, where like the end of the neuron can release neurotransmitters, and then those ne- those neurotransmitters can bind to neurons that are next door to it and signal those neurons to activate and shoot action potentials and propagate more nerve signals. So I mentioned this sort of space between the sending cell and the receiving cell, right? The sending cell can release serotonin or another neurotransmitter into the space that's like next door to the receiving cell. That space is called a synapse. And synapses are crucial for proper brain function because without synapses, our brain cells are not talking to each other. If our brain cells are not next to each other, if there aren't spaces between them, that means that they're unable to talk to each other and then the neuron function of activating other neurons and propagating nerve signals uh, is non-existent. It's useless. So let's put this in perspective for a second. Right now, you are listening to me saying these words. So there are sound receptors in your ears that respond to the change in pressure That is what sound is. It's just changing pressure waves throughout the air. So the the sound receptor cells in your ear will respond to that and send electrical signals to the auditory processing center of your brain in your temporal cortex. And then from there, it'll decipher, fire a neuron to decipher the sounds that you're hearing. And then another neuron to understand and process it as speech make it into meaningful words and not just sounds. And this all happens in the span of milliseconds, right? And it's all possible because of neurons, your brain cells, and synapses, the connections between those cells. So now let's get into the second question. Now hopefully we have a better understanding of how our brain cells talk to each other and why it's important that they talk to each other. So the second question is asking about how the brain can change. Basically, what is neuroplasticity? How does it work? Why is it important? So one of the things that makes us living human beings is our ability to adapt to change. And our brain is no exception to this. It can adapt to change pretty well in normal conditions. But the question is, how? How can the brain change? 
So maybe you're thinking, well, in a new experience, maybe I grow new neurons. I grow new brain cells. So if I'm learning a new skill, if I'm learning a new language, maybe I'm building new neurons every time I learn something new. Um, that's actually not the case. Most of our neurons in our brain uh, were generated, were born essentially during fetal development. So we're actually born with most of our brain cells, which is kind of wild and a little sad to think about. <laughs> um, there is actually one part of the adult brain that is capable of growing new neurons. Um, and that process is called neurogenesis. So the generation of new neurons. Um, it's been shown in the adult hippocampus that neurogenesis occurs in a region called the dentate gyrus. Um, but the hippocampus is the region of the brain that's responsible for learning and memory. Um, so it makes sense that when we need new, you know, memories to be formed, there's like an ability to develop new brain cells. Um, so that's one case where we can grow new brain cells, but otherwise in every other region of the brain, we can't. So we're born with essentially almost all of the neurons in our frontal cortex that we'll ever have, which is wild. Um, so you might be wondering like, what the hell? Like I'm way smarter than I was when I was a baby, right? Like way smarter. Like I'm speaking and you're listening and comprehending and you know how to walk and you know how to read. Like you've, you've learned so much since you were a baby. Give yourself a pat on the back for that. Snaps. Snaps for you for having critical brain development, even though you haven't grown a single neuron. That's actually not true. That's a little dramatic. Um, but you might be wondering, like, how have I developed so much if I had most of my brain cells when I was a baby, but I'm so different than I was then? Um, well, the number of neurons may be close to the same, not identical, but not that different from when you were a baby, but the number of synapses, connection between those cells, definitely changed. The number of synapses or the connections between the neurons dramatically increases as the brain is developing. And the, the time where that increase is the most dramatic is between mid-gestation until early childhood in humans. Um, the synaptic density or the number of synapses in a certain area within the brain actually increases so much during that time period that it reaches a level that is greater than the synaptic density in the adult, in the adult brain. Um, and it sort of levels out or plateaus at that amount that's greater than the adult for most of your childhood. So while you're learning new things, you're learning to read, you're learning to write, your synaptic density levels are greater than an average adult. Um, but then comes a period of what's called synaptic pruning, and that happens during adolescence. And this is the time where it's believed that the circuits in your brain become more refined, more optimized. So the synapses that aren't efficient or aren't used very often, or they're just not useful, they go away. So then there's a reduction in synaptic density that let that let, 
<laughs> that brings you down to the level of the adult. Um, and then that pr- stays pretty even from like your 20s until like senescence until you get older. You know, sometimes with aging, um, normal aging, they see a reduction in, in synaptic density. Um, but for the most of your adulthood, it stays pretty much the same level of synapses in your brain. But that does not mean that your brain stops changing after this period because our brains are plastic throughout our lives. Plastic not meaning like the material, plastic meaning malleable, meaning that it can change with time. Um, Hence the name neuroplasticity. I got there. I bet you thought for a second, like this bitch is not ever gonna get there. I got there. I did, didn't I? Um, <laughs> took took a minute, took like fifteen minutes, but I got there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so our brains are plastic. They're able to change. They're malleable. Um, there are studies in rodents and in non-human primates that have shown that synapses across the brain can reorganize throughout life, um, depending on functional use and experience. Um, typically a lot of these studies have the easiest way to study neuroplasticity is in animal studies where the environment can be controlled. Um, so they know like exactly what is going to cause the neuroplasticity, um, or like the changes that they're looking for in the brain. Um, but also because a lot of times for these studies, they need to collect brain tissue samples, um, after the study is completed and then look at the brain under a microscope, for example, or measure proteins in the brain tissue itself. Um, so for a lot of these studies, they use animal studies for that sake. Um, I found an interesting review article. Actually, most of the the articles I'm going to cite today are review articles, Um, But this first one was written by Dr. Arnie May, um, and it's linked below. It summarizes a few studies that describe the mechanisms that make the brain malleable. So it describes like how the neurons are changing. So one article um, they referenced is also linked below by Dr. Barnes and Dr. Finnerty uh, in 2012, They suggest that brain circuits in the mature rodent cortex, so like adult rats, um, can be physically rewired by axon remodeling, by growing new dendrites, and by synapse turnover or relocation. So let's walk through all three of those. The first one is axon remodeling. Remember, axons are the tree trunks that reach to different parts of the brain, Um, connecting two different brain regions potentially with one neuron. So axon remodeling consists of changes and interactions with other neurons along the cell's axon. Sometimes an axon can have bumps on it, which is also known as varicosities. Um, And these little bumps are points at which the axon can potentially get input from surrounding neurons. So 
these varicosities are sensitive to sensory experiences such that they can increase and decrease in size or density depending on the type of connection and the degree of change in input. So in other words, these bumps can become more frequent along the neuron or less frequent along the neuron or bigger or smaller depending on whether the input on the axon varicosity is excitatory or inhibitory. So excitatory means that it's going to turn something on or inhibitory is it's going to inhibit a function. It's going to turn something off. But it also can depend on the degree of change in input, right? So if there's a reduction in sensory input, maybe there will be less of these varicosities. If there's a complete loss of input, maybe there are no varicosities at all from certain brain circuits. So essentially, axon remodeling is changing the input on an axon over time, and it's dependent on sensory input. The second type of way that brain circuits can be remodeled or rewired is through growing new dendrites. So remember, dendrites are the roots of the neuron. Um, they act as sort of the starting point of the nerve signal in the neuron. Um, and they can also be formed or lost as brain networks change. So like axons, the formation of these dendrites are sensitive to sensory experiences, and they're also believed to play a role in rewiring brain circuits in response to experience. Lastly is synaptic relocation. Um, that's another method that the brain uses to change its microstructure, quote unquote. Um, this method requires presynaptic changes to the synapse. So remember, the synapse has the sending cell and the receiving cell, where the sending cell, the axon terminals, release a neurotransmitter into the synapse. And then on the other side of the synapse are the dendrites of another neuron. So instead of the dendrites of the other neuron changing, for synaptic relocation, it's the axon terminals that change. And it can change by becoming the input of a different dendrite. So essentially pulling away from one neuron that it used to wire and going to a different circuit, going to a different neuron in a different circuit. And that process essentially keeps the synapse number the same, right? Because it's like losing one synapse, but then gaining another one. So it like keeps the synapse number the same, but also still adapting to changes in the brain, changes in brain networks. So those are three different ways about how our neurons can change. But what can make them change, right? Like what would cause this to happen even? Um, there's another review article that's cited below by Hikmat and Ethel. And these authors summarized studies that looked at ways in which dendrites reorganize in response to environmental changes. So one key way in which dendrites change in response to environment is in the presence of enrichment. So enrichment, um, you know, just basically enriching your life, enriching your environment, right? So some examples of in animal studies 
are social enrichment, where they'll put animals in group housing. Slammed my watch on my, my desk. Um, <laughs> where they put animals in group housing so they can interact with one another, like social interaction, social enrichment. Another form of enrichment is called perceptual enrichment, and that's when they give the animals new toys, extra treats, things to like keep their minds stimulated, you know? Um, and they change out these toys frequently for like novelty purposes, um, to like keep them sharp or whatever. So typically the studies are in rodents. Um, so they put animals in different environments, right? They do like an animal by themselves and then an animal in a group housing. Um, Animals with enrichment toys, animals with no enrichment toys. Then you can collect the brain, stain the brain tissue to see the brain microstructure or look at the neurons under a microscope. And then you can see how neurons are different in brains that were had no enrichment toys and brains that did have enrichment toys. And what studies have found is that there are increased length and branchiness of the dendrites in rats that had enrichment um, than in rats that did not have enrichment. So more of these connections, more of these dendrites reaching to other circuits than in the rats that had enrichment, had toys, had social interaction compared to the rats that did not have enrichment. And they also found that there's an increase in the number of synapses on each neuron in animals that were enriched versus not enriched environments. Particularly, they found this in specific regions of the brain. So they looked in the sensory and motor cortices. Um, so the sensory motor cortex in your brain, it's like if you're wearing over ear headphones, the, like the strap of the headphones is around where your sensory motor cortex is in your brain. But that's the part of the brain that's responsible for processing peripheral sensory input, so like touching things, moving, grabbing things, and for movement, the motor cortex. It's like if I want to pick up a box and move it and put it down, the sensory motor cortex is going to help me do that. Um, they also found these changes in the occipital cortex or the visual cortex, which is located right at the back of your brain, and that processes visual input. So that kind of makes sense, right? Because if you have increased sensory input with like enrichment toys, for example, you have stimulation of like visible, visual stimulation and like tangible stimulation of like playing with a toy. So they have like more to process, more going on. So there's more going on in the parts of their noggin that are responsible for processing those inputs, right? Versus if I, you know, if you're sitting in a box with no, sitting in a box with no toy, you're not gonna have that visual or like tangible stimulation. You won't be working those brain circuits so they won't need to, be optimized the way that it would be if you were exposed to enrichment. So to summarize that section, your brain responds to your environment 
the microstructure, quote unquote, of your brain, the connections between your brain cells respond to the environment that you're in, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. Now let's talk about the implications of this and why it's so cool that our brains can change like this that they can adapt to different environments and learn new skills, right? So clinically, one example that this paper gave was about um, people who have dependence on drugs of abuse, right? So understanding that the brain can, can has the ability to rewire itself suggests that it's possible for people to rewire their brains to avoid or stop dangerous or unhealthy behaviors and maybe develop different more sustainable habits. Um, of course, it's not as easy as just saying that and being like, done. Um, but like looking on a cellular level and seeing like dendritic reorganization and synaptic changes suggests that with repetition, with time, it is possible to change the brain to improve the lives of people who might be struggling with substance abuse. This ability to change and reorganize neural circuits um, is also a focus in spinal cord injury research, um, which it's believed that connections that are lost, that are deprived of sensory inputs after a spinal cord injury, may be reorganized to help restore function after injury. Um, I cited a source below by Dr. Darian Smith that talks about this in a lot more detail. Um, but even though there's still like a long way to go to totally understand the mechanisms that our brains use and our central nervous system uses to rewire, um, it's pretty remarkable that it's even a thing that we can think about and the thing that we can study. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of cool clinical implications for neuroplasticity, um, that are, you know, just fascinating. I think they're really cool. Yeah, so just know that if you're starting something new, if you're starting a new job or a new skill or a new language, moving to a new place, um, just know that you and your brain will adapt. You've got this. Um, before I close this episode, I just want to give sort of like a state of affairs for the next week or two. Um, the month of May has been very crazy for me. Um, I'm doing some traveling over the next two weeks, so I'm not sure if I'll have time to do a real Sam Splaining Science. Um, but I still want to be consistent and stay on schedule with putting one episode out a week. Um, because I do really enjoy doing this. Um, so I thought maybe next week I could do like a Q&A episode. Um... I think most people who listen to this know me personally, but maybe this is reaching some people who don't know me really well. So I thought maybe it could be like a cute, like get to know me after 20 weeks <laughs> episode. Um, Cause you know, that just requires minimal research. It requires no research on my end because I already know me. So if you ask me questions about me, I don't have to look it up. I just have to look inside. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, so yeah you can ask me questions about me um, but probably more interesting uh, if you have any questions about like 
being a scientist or going to grad school or whatever. Like I can talk about those experiences as well. So if you have any, if you like want advice or anything, let me know. Um, so that I have, I'm going to have to request some questions from you listener. Um, as always, you can submit questions on samsplainingscience.com slash ask. Those you can choose to be anonymous if you'd like. You don't have to put your name in those questions. So if you have a question that's like, you're like, oh, I don't want her to know that I asked this dumb question. First of all, there are no dumb questions. Um, it says that on the form. Okay. But um, yeah, if you want to be anonymous, you just don't have to put your name on those. Um, but I'm also going to put a question box in my Instagram story this week or before next week's episode. Uh, so you can submit some there also, but those are not anonymous. So be nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, they can be fun questions like, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Or they can be more serious questions. Like if you want advice for grad school or, you know, college or life or anything, um, that's fine too. It'll just give me uh, content that I don't have to study and like read peer-reviewed papers for because I don't have the time for that in these next two weeks. All right, that's all for this week. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at SamSplainingSci. Connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions at samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have anything that you want Sam explain to you, ask away. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.